Today's dead idea? Bicycle face. You heard me correctly, bicycle face. A medical condition afflicting lady cyclists in the 1890s, or believed to do so at least among a small cadre of concerned doctors. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, whose freewheeling cycling about the neighborhood incites many a harumph among the local gentry. I'm B.T. Newberg, but you can call me Brandon. It's just me today for this series, but stay tuned. At the end of this show, we have a special mystery treat for you from Anna and Nick and I. We're all there for that. So stay tuned for that, but today we're trying something a little different than usual. We're doing a short little series of just one episode. So I guess you could say it's not really a series technically, but whatever. Anyway, when I encountered this particular weird topic, the medical condition called bicycle face, I knew I had to do it on the show, but there's just not enough to justify a whole long series, so we're doing a little one-parter. I hope you enjoy it. So this is a standalone series, but it also serves a second purpose. It's kind of a prequel to set the stage for our December series topic, which is also set in the 1890s, also a medical condition, and also primarily concerned with women. Can you guess what it might be? I'll give you a few hints. Think fainting couches, think quote-unquote emotionally distraught women, and think quote-unquote rational masculine men taking said women by the arms and saying, woman, you're getting, that's right, hysterical. Yep, our dead idea for December will be hysteria, the medical condition whereby men attributed pretty much anything about women's behavior that they didn't like to their womb wandering around their body. Yes. So next month is going to be really fun, bizarre, and frankly even a little bit dark at times. And so today, with Bicycle Face, we are setting the scene with a related dead idea, which is considerably more lighthearted but really shows how some doctors in the 1890s approached health issues of the fairer sex. So put on your bloomers, folks, and wheel out your safety bikes. Let's talk about Bicycle Face. <laughs> so I'm going to let an actual article from the time introduce this topic for us, and after that we'll go into a more general discussion of this strange and short-lived medical fad and all the background behind it, okay? But we'll go first to the article. This is from the Literary Digest from 1895, and it's the earliest reference that I could find available online. I couldn't find the original flashpoint, or typhoid Mary, I guess you could call it, of this particular dead idea. But I gather that 1895, or perhaps the year before, must have seen the beginning of this weird fad. Okay, so let's go to the article here, and it begins, Warning against excessive indulgence in wheeling will perhaps be heeded more on account of the discovery of the alleged bicycle face by English medical papers. I couldn't locate those papers, but that's apparently what preceded this. It is claimed that overexertion, the upright position on the wheel, and the unconscious effort to maintain one's balance tend to produce a wearied and exhausted bicycle face. 
Wheelmen and wheelwomen indignantly deny the reality of this alleged peculiarity of physiognomy, but the talk about the bicycle face has gained considerable currency and given rise to grave discussion concerning the causes and remedies of the phenomenon. The Springfield Republican, which says that in almost any company of wheelers, the face can be seen, and which describes one type of it as usually flushed, but sometimes pale, often with lips more or less drawn, and the beginning of dark shadows under the eyes, and always with an expression of weariness. So that's a description of the bicycle face. I'm going to skip a more boring part of this article to go on to the part where it starts to get into more of the ramifications of this, the social dangers. Accepting the physical explanations of the bicycle face, the Christian intelligencer goes on to point out another reason which it regrets to see entirely ignored. It says, Is it not possible that the law of the Decalogue, which is kind of a reference to scripture, Bible, etc., is binding upon bicyclists as well as upon other people, and an habitual violation of the law of the Sabbath may result in the worn, weary, and exhausted face called the bicycle face? <laughs> Doctors have fallen in with the unbelief and recklessness of the times, and do not insist in their spoken and written words upon the need of one day of rest in every seven days, and they look for the cause of the bicycle face in something besides the customary Sunday runs. And skipping a little further down, it goes on to say, On the other hand, the Boston advertiser is of the opinion that the facts are perverted in this talk about the bicycle face. It says, So far as there is any truth in the talk, Pretty much the same might be said of all other kinds of recreation. It has long been a proverb that the members of the Anglo-Saxon race take their pleasure sadly, quote-unquote. <laughs> it is no doubt true that a bicycle rider cannot give himself up absolutely to thoughtlessness, as one may who is riding in a carriage which somebody else is driving, but thoughtfulness is not painfulness though some people seem to think it is. And so this, I think, seems to be proposed as one of the causes for the bicycle face, is that you take so much concern for yourself on the road. I don't know. Anyway, he goes on. In truth, one of the greatest sources of benefit to health arising from bicycling is no doubt that the rider must give some slight but unremitting attention to his machine and his road. The Providence Journal rather likes the bicycle face. It says, The bicycle face, which seems to worry some people so much, is undoubtedly a reality and not a mere product of the imagination. And it is perhaps not so pleasing to behold as the smiling vacuity of expression which in some society passes for a sign of affability and an indication that the person wearing it is enjoying himself. But he isn't always whereas the bicycle rider invariably is, even though he may not look so. Besides, the bicycle face, it will be observed, makes up in healthiness of color what it may lack in softness of lines. Now there's a couple interesting things to note about that. First of all, even in this earliest reference that I could find, which is clearly already jumping in midway in the conversation here, even in this reference there's already 
two sides to the story. Some people saying that this is totally bogus, okay? <laughs> and also, it's interesting to note that here, in this early part, it's talking about both men and women, whereas we're going to see it comes very quickly to be focused mainly just on women. Okay, so that's a first taste of what was suddenly being said about this great medical danger of bicycle face. <laughs> but what was this really all about? We, out of context, this seems totally weird. So what's going on here? Let's get a bit of historical background. Okay, so the 1890s was the beginning of the golden age of cycling, as it's called. And this was ushered in, in no small part, by the introduction of the Rover Safety Bicycle, which was a considerable improvement over what there was before. When bicycles were first invented, it was kind of like this big, heavy, wooden thing that you kind of pushed yourself along on with your feet, or else pedaled with your hands, believe it or not. Uh, and then after that, there was, you know, the big wheelers, the velocipedes, uh, with the giant wheel on the front that you could achieve some considerable speed, but it was kind of dangerous and unwieldy. The safety bicycle actually brought to us the design that we have to this day with two equal-sized wheels with pneumatic tires, so filled with air, and pedals in the middle. And this design was sort of a godsend for people of modest means who couldn't afford the upkeep of a horse or one of those newfangled things called an automobile. And as a consequence, we're mainly limited to walking everywhere. So that kind of limited your, your range of where you could go a certain mile radius around your home. And so these sorts of people found the distance to which they could now travel with relative ease greatly expanded. Now the other thing about the 1890s was that this was very much in the heyday of first wave feminism. You had suffragettes fighting for the right to vote at this time. You had something called the rational dress movement, which was fighting for more reasonable and practical fashions for women. Because believe it or not, at the time, the average woman was wearing 14 pounds of undergarments. And, of course, also at that time, you had corsets, which were literally deforming the shape of women's bodies and compressing their internal organs in a way that's pretty darn comparable to foot binding over in the East. Interesting parallel there. And at this time, you also had intellectuals and literati talking about what they called the woman question, quote-unquote. So this is very much a time of things being up in the air, old values being upset and questioned around women. So in that context, here comes the safety bicycle. With its expansion of mobility, and guess what segment of the population, traditionally more housebound than any other, benefited a lot from that mobility? Well, yes, of course, women, right? And in fact, the great feminist Susan B. Anthony called the bicycle face the freedom machine and said, I think it has done more to emancipate women than any one thing in the world. So it was this was a big deal. It was a big deal. But this freedom, of course, was also apparently deeply disturbing to some people. They called it scorching. Scorching meant tearing around town at high speed on a bicycle. <laughs> and with a name like that, you would think these lady cyclists were like Hell's Angels or something. And it almost, you know, in a way, they kind of were probably seen 
somewhat like that because like Hell's Angels of today, these scorchers were seen as flying in the face of traditional values. Scorching was seen as a feminist activity and feminism was dangerous. So you can see the fear associated with bicycling, of all things, <laughs> in the kind of rumors that surrounded lady cycling. It was associated with, and you can definitely see this one coming, right? It was associated with promiscuity. Yep. In fact, a special model of the bicycle had to be made for women that eliminated the top bar of the bike frame, you know, the one that runs parallel to the ground from sort of where the under where the seat is to where the handlebars are, that one, that was taken out. And why was that significant? Because otherwise you had to spread your legs immodestly to mount the bicycle. You had to lift your leg over the bar to get on and that was seen as scandalous by some. But the fear didn't end there. It also extended to worries about the face. So now let's go to another article. These are all little excerpts of articles today. This one is from April of 1896, written in The Outlook. It's by R.L. Dickinson, entitled Bicycling for Women, The Puzzling Question of Costume. And he dwells for a long time on what women should wear when riding a bicycle. And when he comes to bicycle face, here's what he has to say. He says, as for the head covering, a doctor makes but one point. He speaks for protection for the eyes. The so-called bicycle face is mainly a sun glare scowl. A variety of brims offer sufficient choice. The alpine hat, the tam-o'-shanter with visor, or with soft stitched brim all around like the beef eaters, or the plain tam, the narrow-brimmed felt often seen with hunting costumes, and if one dared to say it, the golf cap, and the forbidden yachting cap. <laughs> I don't know what's forbidden about a yachting cap. But uh, he says, only the usual feminine street hat compounded of nothing but feathers and flowers is artistically and practically unsuitable. Incidentally, when I looked for vintage pictures of the time of this, all everything I saw was the, the one kind of hat that he says you shouldn't wear, which is this street hat with the feathers coming off of it. <laughs> so I don't think his advice was really heeded very much, but that's what he has to say about that. Okay, so it seems that what people were worried about here is women developing an unfeminine face. And that, I find that really interesting because it is strangely echoed today by that whole internet thing you may have read about called the RBF or resting bitch face. And this, if you haven't heard of it, is the idea that women are always supposed to be sort of like smiling and looking friendly or something in pictures. And if you're a woman and you dare to show your facial mu muscles just sort of resting in a neutral state, it's not perceived as no expression. And it's not perceived as tough or badass like it would be for a man. It's seen as bitchy, which, as we all know, is does not carry the same connotations as tough or badass. It's very different. So it's this kind of double standard kind of thing. And so anyway, we seem to be seeing the same kind of double standard here with this 1890s concern about bicycle face, which is particularly focused on women's bicycle face. Okay, but even from the start, like we've already seen, some were not convinced that this was a genuine medical concern. So now let's go to the next article that I could find in our chronological sequence here. 
This is from August of 1896, where J.B. Bishop writes in an article entitled Social and Economic Influence of the Bicycle. This is from a journal called The Forum. J.B. Bishop writes, There has been much talk about the bicycle face and its causes, and the most common explanation has been that it is due to the rider's anxiety about maintaining his equilibrium. <laughs> so I guess if you imagine a new bicycle rider sort of being shaky on a bicycle and having this worried look on their face, maybe that's it. This explanation must have originated among persons who do not ride, for there is nothing which the novice acquires more readily than the ability to preserve his equilibrium. That soon becomes second nature to him. After he has ridden a short time, he thinks no more about keeping his wheel upright than he thinks about keeping his body upright in walking. But what troubles him for a much longer period is the rate of speed at which he is moving. This is four or five times his usual walking gait. <laughs> and he does not feel at ease till he becomes so thoroughly accustomed to it that he knows exactly at all times just what use he could make of his wheel in any given situation. This is the new power which has been attached to his feet, and anxiety lest it may get him into trouble gives him the bicycle face, which remains with him until his wheel becomes part of himself and he moves about on it as automatically as he moves about on his feet. He has then become master of his new power, the most valuable he has acquired since he learned to walk, and it is henceforth a part of his equipment for his struggle with life. <laughs> okay, so there he's like, yeah, he might have some bicycle face at first, but big deal. You get used to it, is basically what he's saying. Also, interestingly, he uses the masculine pronoun, so he doesn't seem to be completely concerned about women in particular here. So it's not a univocal kind of concern that we're seeing. There's different voices going on here. Nevertheless, these sorts of counter voices did not stop some people, including doctors, from turning this thing into a full-blown medical threat of epidemic proportions. In February of 1897, in the National Review, a certain Dr. A. Shadwell publishes an article entitled The Hidden Dangers of Cycling, and in it she cobbles together a whole range of medical dangers which she associates with cycling, including tiredness, headaches, delusions, appendicitis, and even goiters. And if you don't know what a goiter is, it's sort of like a growth on your neck. <laughs> Imagine getting that as a result of bicycling. <laughs> Okay, but anyway, so anyway, all of these uh, risks that Shadwell brings up in her article, these are just nothing but anecdotal evidence strung together with no valid clinical study of any kind. And in fact, it reminds me a whole lot of the sort of anti-vax narrative today. It's just, you know, anecdotal evidence that's easily and repeatedly disproven, but still goes viral in popularity due to its sort of fear-mongering quality. And I think that's what we're seeing here, too in the 1890s. So here's what Shadwell has to say when she gets to bicycle face. The vera causa, and I think that's Latin for true cause, seems to lie in the extreme instability of the two-wheeled machine, which can never be left to itself for a single moment without dismounting. 
So that seems to be the concern about equilibrium again, that the other guy already said was just bunk. But anyway, she's repeating that. In this respect, bicycling differs from any other occupation whatever. The strain of attending to it may not be very great in itself. Sometimes it is and sometimes it is not, but it never ceases, and this incessant tension is the thing which tells upon the nerves. How incessant it is, the demeanor of most riders declares with an emphasis which still excites ridicule, familiar as the sight has become. Some time ago, I drew attention to the particular strained, set look so often associated with the pastime and called it the bicycle face. The general adoption of the phrase since then indicates a general recognition of its justice. So apparently, Shadwell thinks that she coined it, and maybe that's true, maybe it's not. I couldn't find whatever article she was referencing, so we'll leave it at that. Anyway, she continues, Some wear the face more and some less marked, but nearly all have it except the small boys who care little for croppers. Has anybody ever seen persons on bicycles talking and laughing and looking jolly, like persons engaged in any other amusements? Never, I swear. Doubtless, they can at a pinch, but in practice, they don't. <laughs> what? <laughs> so no, there, you never see anybody smiling on a bicycle? Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Okay, well, let's move on. So, very quickly after that, a cartoon argument appears, and it is summarized in March of 1897, the next month, in the Literary Digest. And by the way, strangely, the author counter arguing against A. Shadwell refers to her as a he, even though in the original article, she clearly states, I am not a new woman, meaning I'm not a feminist, which to me at least seems to indicate pretty clearly that she is a she. But anyway, it shows the assumptions of the time that this author takes A. Shadwell to be a man. So here's the counter-argument to A. Shadwell. As was to be expected, Dr. Shadwell's article on the danger of incurring serious nervous injuries by cycling even in moderation has not gone long without reply. The article was printed in the February National Review. In the March issue appears a brief but caustic reply from a devotee of the wheel, Mr. Frederick Pollock. Okay. Mr. Pollock complains that Dr. Shadwell's article contains very little that is definite enough to reply to. The gist of it is that he, Dr. Shadwell, has met a number of persons with whom cycling does not agree. The same may be said of any form of work, exercise, or amusement. As they that are whole need no physician, it is quite probable that a doctor may exaggerate the ratio of those injured to those benefited by the wheel. So in other words, what they're saying, A. Shadwell is a doctor, and all the patients that come in that the doctor is exposed to have problems so there's sort of like an availability bias. Uh, you, the doctor obviously sees people who are suffering from biking, but doesn't actually get any patients coming in that are not suffering from biking, because why would they come in, right? Okay, so that's, the, that's all that they're really saying there. Mr. Pollock, speaking from his own personal experience, says he does not know of a single case of injury such as the doctor speaks of. Okay. And then I'm going to speed along here to part of Pollock's actual words that they quote here. Perhaps it may be presuming too far to suggest that Dr. Shadwell has never learnt to ride a bicycle himself, 
but at any rate, he writes as if he supposed the operations of balancing and steering to be an ever-present and consciously felt nervous strain. Any cyclist of a year's or even six months' standing can assure him that first the balancing, then the steering, and then the regulation of speed become, after some little practice, as automatic as the corresponding actions in walking. Dr. Shadwell knows very well that walking itself is a perpetual act of balancing and does not come all at once by nature. We have all had to learn it at the cost of more tumbles than fall to the lot of most cyclists, like when we're babies, right? And we may all forget it wholly or partly at moments when the proper coordinating nervous centers are enfeebled by sickness or accident. On Dr. Shadwell's principles, it would seem that some part of the fatigue of a long walk should have a cerebral origin. For aught I know this may be so, and if a fact at all, it may well be a fact of some physiological interest. Only in that case, there is no reason to take alarm when we find a similar element occurring in a more prominent manner in another kind of balancing motion which the present generation has not learnt in infancy. So in other words, what this Pollock is saying is that you know, we all have to balance ourselves when we walk. We all fell down when we were babies learning to walk. And there's no reason to think, even if there is some medical condition to be worried about with that, there's no reason to think that just because now we're going through that process again with a bicycle, that there's anything to be worried about here. So he's saying, eh, bogus, right? He's calling bullshit on this whole thing. Now, after that, things just start getting kind of silly. This almost starts to become like, when you're reading through a thread on a forum, and after a while, it just <laughs> gets ridiculous. <laughs> so here's what I found next. This comes from July of 1897 in Muncie's Magazine. It is an article entitled, In Vanity Fair. And we don't have an author listed for this, strangely. But here's what we have to say. <laughs> okay, so it says... The ravages of the wheel upon established customs and preconceived notions are merciless. <laughs> no thought of its fitness or adaptability to its intended use deters the zealot from extending its domain. The cry of the wheeling enthusiast is ever, While the spider spins I spin I, with the cycling winds I vie. Wheeling gull may tire, not I, I'll ride the whirlwind by and by. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then he goes on with reference to the bicycle face. The bicycle face is well known with its tightly drawn muscles, resolute, tense expression, and an underlying air of resignation as if it were saying, if death whirls around the next corner, I will meet it with fortitude. <laughs> the long distance lens of the golf eye is also growing common. <laughs> so so now we're going to beyond just bicycles. But the card face is comparatively new. The card face, like playing cards. The more experienced Sherlock Holmeses of society claim that they can detect the difference between the whist face and the countenance molded by progressive euchre. <laughs> so even there's a different face for each kind of card game, even. But the card face in general is recognized by the veriest tyro. Tyro means like sort of novice or beginner. So even a beginner can recognize the card face. So you see what I mean, how this is getting just plain silly. 
one more little bit in that vein. Next, in uh, 1898, May 7th, in the Literary Digest, in the little Topics in Brief area where it kind of brings up recent topics that have been discussed, it says, the bulletin face has taken the place of the bicycle face. <laughs> so now there's the bulletin face, too, which I, I don't know what that is. I imagine it's like being bored at a boardroom meeting or something. I don't know. It's getting silly. Okay, so <laughs> finally, we're, we got to draw this to a close. Finally, in June of 1899 is the last mention that I could find of a bicycle face among these primary sources, at least. And by then, to me, it seems like it seems to be winding down by that point. So in this 1899 article, Edmund Gossie writes a pro-feminist article in the North American Review describing his female contemporaries as the daughters of Britomart, which is a reference back to a poem by Spencer, the Fairy Queen. Britomart was a particularly headstrong and physically capable woman who basically kicked the ass of a guy in there in some kind of a, a duel of some kind. So using that as sort of like a symbolic figure for feminists of his day. And he argues against a certain doctor named Arabella Keneally, who seems to be the latest fad doctor to write worryingly about this stupid thing called the bicycle face, which by this point, he's just trying to put the last nail of the coffin in. Okay, so Edmund Gossie writes, What Miss Keneally says does certainly inflict a dint upon the silver armor of Britomart. She tells the women who boast of the marvelous addition to their muscular energies that they have acquired these powers at the expense of others, at least as valuable and more characteristic. She tells them that they need not be so proud of being able to scour the country on their bicycles and smash their neighbors' windows with their hockey. <laughs> what? Smashing windows with their hockey? And now it really sounds like uh, some kind of Hell's Angels kind of image. Because in attaining this muscularity, they have destroyed the harmonious balance of their faculties. She asks them whether they have reflected that that muscle which they deify is nothing but means to an end, and whether they justify the neglect of that end. She accuses the tall fleet girls of today of fostering athleticism at the expense of sympathy, emotion, and delicacy. Because obviously that's how women should all be. Their countenances a few years ago were gentle, refined, and full of expression, they have now gained the hard bicycle face, which comes from prolonged muscular tension. In short, she charges the woman athlete with having sacrificed all her charm to a wiry fitness, which is no real indication of health and no proper characteristic of her sex in its normal condition. <laughs> what is said by Miss Keneally has been simultaneously said by women writers in Germany and France, even in Sweden where gymnastics have so long been deemed imperative for women, and in Switzerland where they have more recently been introduced, there is a reaction against the exaggerated use of them. From all parts of Europe comes the complaint, and it is expressed preeminently by intelligent women, that a clamorous and egotistical type is being encouraged among girls by this excessive athleticism, and that the next generation cannot fail to suffer from these unmaidenly mothers. That the faces of these strapping maidens do not any longer reflect, quote, the haze of emotions, end quote, 
<laughs> the haze of emotions, uh, seems in measure to be true. They're supposed to reflect a haze of emotions on their faces to be feminine. There will probably be a reaction, and we shall see the daughters of Britomart elegant at the harp once more, or bent over the mysteries of cruel work. I do not believe that any absurdity of fashion destroys the harmonious balance of faculties. It can only provisionally disturb it. So in other words, again, calling BS on this. I don't buy it, says Gossi. Nor can I deny that the dreadful picture painted in Colors of the Thundercloud by Miss Arabella Keneally strikes me as little more lurid than experience warrants. <laughs> so in other words, <laughs> Gossi is just saying, all right, enough already. Come on. <laughs> People, please. All right. So, so uh, he's kind of, kind of feeling probably what we're feeling right now, which is it's time to draw this to a close. So this particular dead idea seemed to have pretty much just been a fad, never fully embraced by the mainstream medical community. We saw that there were always kind of voices that were saying, this is bullshit. But it was kind of like an internet meme that burned hot for a while and then eventually just faded away as people seemed to move on to other distractions, I guess. But it is uh, a quirky episode from a movement, the Lady Cyclist movement, that may still have some echoes today. Of course, both men and women ride today, and nobody thinks twice about it. But I have noticed that, at least here in Minneapolis, where I am in Minnesota, uh, which, by the way, has a weirdly fanatical bicycling community. It's strange. You can often see people riding their fat bike tires, even in the dead of winter when it's snowy and icy out. I don't know why, but people are crazy about bicycling here in Minneapolis. Anyway, here in Minneapolis, bike shops are actually really popular places for women to work, and in particular, women from the lesbian community. And I always figured that it was just, you know, it was a way to express orientation through adopting a traditionally masculine role, like a mechanic. But having read this now, I, I have to wonder if there isn't at least some faint echo back to the kind of freedom that the bicycle afforded to those early first wave feminists. And so... I don't know, am I off the mark, maybe? But I'd like to think that there's some kind of history here that's worth being proud of. So I guess I'll just say in closing, let me just say to all women and all men and all trans and everything in between and every orientation out there, bear it with pride. Everybody, show me your bicycle face. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for today's topic, folks, and that should set us up nicely for our December series on hysteria. But, but hold on, we are not done yet with today's show. As I said before, we have a special mystery treat for you. This comes from Anna, Nick, and I, and we've got that coming up in just a moment. Before that, I just want to do a quick thanks to all the listeners who have done reviews for us. We've got a number of new portraits that have come out lately, including... Ed Newberg as a Roman centurion helicopter pilot <laughs> with Connie Newberg as a Hopi girl. Thanks, Mom and Dad. I love you guys. 
Also, we have Adam McKithern, drawn as a Civil War cavalryman, and a special thanks goes out to Adam for offering to do a custom map for us for one of our upcoming series that will hopefully come out in January. Watch for that. Also, we have a portrait, Joe Bristol, as a seaman in Lord Nelson's Navy, Laura Kelly as the goddess Artemis of Ephesus, and finally, Thomas Call as a Napoleonic general. So you can check all those out at deadideas.net on our supporters page. And you too can get your portrait done in the time period and culture of your choosing. Just review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, or wherever people will see it. Then email us at deadideaspod at gmail.com with what you want, and we will draw you up good. Remember, we will be moving the portraits to a Patreon donation model soon in response to demand, but for now, you can still get your portrait done for free in exchange for an honest review. Okay, 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 enough waiting. Time for our special mystery treat. Anna, Nick, and I have for you... Dun-dun-dun! A radio play. Just a brief little thing. We are all creatives here, and we like to promote each other's work, and so we are performing for you a short scene from a comic book written by our very own Anna Breton. And it's called Francis Sharp in the Grip of the Uncanny. And it's got luscious, inky, Victorian-esque art by Brit Sabo. So sit back and enjoy our very first radio play. All right, everybody, enjoy, and I'll see you next week for the Hysteria series. Join us, gentle listener, as we look into the world of Francis Sharp, a young farm boy from 1930s New Jersey, whose life takes a turn for the uncanny. Hello? Anybody home? Calls a voice as Francis Sharp looks on to his pulp publications, The Occultist in the Sands of Time. Hey, Harry! Hey, Francis, is it started yet? Uh... They got rid of your radio? Oh, Francis, I walked four miles for this. You live two miles away. Works out to four there and back. We'll never know how the curse of King Semerket was lifted. Have to ask that rat-fink Jim O'Leary how it ends. Stupid townie. At least it wasn't one of the better stories. What? It was great! Couldn't figure out what was going on. You know, parallel dimensions! Cracks in the plaster of reality! Yeah, but what does that even mean? What? It means things like Bigfoot and the Jersey Devil make sense! No such things. Yeah, but if there was... There isn't! But if there was... Anyway, the ghost stories were better. Guess we won't hear those now, either. So now what do we do? Well... We meet again, Revenant! Occultist! How dare say you! Say the occultist. I did. No, you said occultist. Same thing anyway. You didn't say the Revenant. <laughs> the Eye of Mithridates will hold you to the truth. Hey, that's your pa's watch. Yeah, sorta. Anyway. How come you've got it? It's due. Besides, Grandpa promised it to me. Where's your old talisman? Ma took it away after I broke that mirror. Anyway. I've stumbled onto your diabolical plan! Pow! Take that! No, you have to explain your plan first! Why? Nobody does that! The Revenant does! Real bad guys don't do that. But at least some do. Why do we always play occultist? It's boring. It's not! Anyway, you keep coming over. Let's play cowboys and engines. At least they're real. Uh, cowboys don't save the world. And they don't save people, or fight evil, or battle necromantic harpy women! All the occultist is about is about one dead guy fighting other dead guys. Yeah, because he doesn't kill the living! I only kill people! Who are already dead. It doesn't even make sense. He does that because he has to protect humanity from eldritch horror from beyond! Anyway, cowboys are kid stuff. I'm going home. Come on, we always play the occultist! Yeah, after we listen to it. And it's not like we're going to do that anymore. We can do something else. Like what? And don't say play the shed. Wait. Look, 
over there? Something lurks in the bushes. Something's there next to that tree. See it? Probably a raccoon or the cat. Time to investigate! Francis! Calls Harry as Francis runs after the creature into the bushes. Francis, wait up! It's getting away! Francis! But Francis is already off, chasing the creature into the woods deeper and deeper. And there, gentle listener, we shall leave you with a cliffhanger. And you shall have to purchase this comic book online if you wish to know the rest of the story. <laughs> you can go to bsabo.com, that's B-S-A-B-O.com, where you can support Anna and our great friend, Britt Sabo, and uh, find out what's going on with the rest of this awesome comic book. It would make a great Christmas gift. $10. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you later, everybody. See you next week.